All right, so find your way to Ezekiel. Eventually, we're going to pick up in 34. And we're going to boldly proceed to the end tonight. And so remind me, who wrote Ezekiel? Ezekiel. Joe. Joe. <laughs> Most people say Ezekiel, but of course you'll find anybody that will argue with anybody about anything. Sure. When was Ezekiel written? We remember back from maybe chapter 1, that dramatic scene of what was happening in chapter 1. Before or after the exile? Yeah, it was after, right? Because Ezekiel was kind of sitting, bumped out on his birthday oh, yeah. on the banks of the Cheever Canal, thinking about all his exiled friends and what's going on back home. It's uh, a lot of prophecy, a lot of apocalyptic, a lot of symbolism, which we'll see tonight. Definitely there's some symbolism in this, this last chunk. And so, yeah, in the, in the grand story of the Bible and redemptive history, uh, Israel has just been judged, so... Northern Kingdom, again, was run over by Assyria, like 722 or so. And then the, the Southern Kingdom, which by this point was just Judah, was run in by now uh, Babylon. And that was about 586. And so they, they exiled people in waves all the way back to Babylon. And I was looking through another book today. Uh, there was a, a, a carving of um, Babylon leading Israel back. Babylon and it was just like these death marches you know mm. of course they didn't like you know accommodate them in any way they're just like we're going back to Babylon you know however many thousands of miles that way so start walking and how many probably died along the way and everything else so just wave after wave of people uh, being exiled back to Babylon and so yeah so Israel has officially uh, felt I remember last last week we kind of ended on it was kind of a downer right it was like Israel has officially felt the wrath of God what he has been, hello, what he has been um, threatening for hundreds of years now has come to fruition. And so uh, Israel has officially felt the judgment of God uh, in that. So what we're going to see in part two is we're going to see a little bit brighter of a hope in part two. We're going to see a hope of restoration we're going to see God uh, receiving even glory in the way that he judges Israel, but also the way he judges the nations themselves all around them. Remember, that's the thing, too. When a nation like uh, Edom or Babylon or Assyria, they come in and they do really what God has allowed them to do, right? Even though it was his plan, they're still judged for that, right? They're still judged for the evil that they did. You know, they're still judged for the sin, but we see the wonder of God's sovereignty in that he stands behind that going, I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were going to be evil and come in and run over my people. But ha, it's actually my whole plan to use that for my glory and for my judgment. So we're going to see that as well. And then the biggest thing is that God giving hope uh, of a new Israel through the prince. We'll see the arrival of the prince. And what does that mean? What does that point to? So without further ado... I will fire up our little TV here. Roll the tape. And roll the tape. And I will hopefully... What does that be? The tape. <laughs> What's a tape? I think a newscaster used to say that. Yeah. Warner Wolf. Warner Wolf. Let's go to the video tape. Tape. That dates us. I remember that. Well, we ended up chapter Yeah, Warner Wolf. That's what I thought. Oh, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah.
Um, let's see, the screen. Fading. And here we go. It's part two. Part two. The book of the prophet Ezekiel. In the first video, we were introduced to Ezekiel the priest, and he's sitting among the exiles in Babylon. And he's confronted by the awesome glory of God's temple presence, but it's appearing to him in Babylon. And then Ezekiel discovers why. It's because of Israel's idolatry and injustice that has compelled God to abandon his own temple. And while there is still hope for the future, the book went on to develop Ezekiel's message of divine judgment, first for Israel and then for the nations around Israel. And then a key moment happened in chapter 33. Ezekiel receives a report that the Babylonian siege of Jerusalem is over because the city has fallen, the temple is destroyed. Ezekiel's grim words of warning came true. The exile was the most horrendous catastrophe that ever happened to Israel, and it raised the big questions of whether God was done with Israel for good. But remember, at the end of chapter 11, God promised that there was still a future beyond exile for Israel. And so the rest of the book is designed to explore Ezekiel's vision of hope, first for Israel, then for the nations, and then for all of creation. The hope for Israel begins with God promising to raise up a new David, a future messianic king, who's going to be the kind of leader that Israel needed but never got. And this new Israel, who's going to come under the messianic king's rule, is going to be a transformed people. God's going to deal with the heart of their problem of rebellion by giving them new hearts. It's just like Moses promised at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. God says he's going to remove their hard hearts and send his spirit into his people to give them new soft hearts that can love and obey their God. And this idea gets developed in the next strange vision. Ezekiel sees a huge valley filled up with dry human bones and skeletons. And God tells him that it's an image, a metaphor, for Israel's spiritual state. So their rebellion against God, it resulted in exile and the literal death of many people. But it was also a metaphorical death of their covenant relationship. And God tells Ezekiel that his spirit is coming to bring his people back to life. And so this wind comes, and it causes all of the bones to stand up, and it fills them with breath and life, and then skin grows over the bones, and then all of a sudden Ezekiel sees all of these new humans standing in front of him. Now this vision, it's recalling the story about the creation of humans in Genesis chapter 2, where God made humans out of dirt and divine breath. And so Israel and all humanity have rebelled, resulting in death. And so the only hope is that God would perform a new act of creation and remake humans in such a way that they can truly live in a relationship of love with God and with each other. And so after God is going to deal with the evil that's in the hearts of his own people, some questions still remain unresolved. Like, what about the evil that's still rampant out there among the nations? And what about the future of God's dwelling place in the temple? And this is what the final two sections of the book are about. So first come chapters 38 and 39, and they promise God's final defeat of evil among the nations, which gets personified by a ruler who's named Gog from the land of Magog. Now this name is derived from a genealogy of ancient kingdoms and lands from Genesis chapter 10, and it referred to powerful nations from the distant past. And so Ezekiel picks up this ancient biblical name as an image of any and all violent kingdoms. And so we find that God gets allied with seven nations that come from all four directions of the compass is clearly an image that represents all of the nations. 
This also helps us understand why Ezekiel describes Gog with images that he used earlier in the book to describe the king of Tyre and the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. For Ezekiel, Gog is an amalgam of all of the worst, most violent people in the Bible. Gog is the archetype of human rebellion against God. The basic story in these chapters is that Gog resists God's plan to restore his people. And so just like Pharaoh in the Exodus story, Gog comes to destroy the people. But God unleashes his justice on Gog, and it's in a flurry of scenes that don't actually make very good literal sense if you read them in sequence. Because first, Gog and his armies are consumed by an earthquake, but then they're consumed by fire two different times. And then after that, God comes and strikes Gog and his army down in the fields where they lay unburied for months. It's clear that these scenes are full of symbol and imagery. Ezekiel has pulled out his entire poetic tool set here to describe how God is determined to finally defeat human evil that has ruined his world. And it's so that he can pave the way for a new creation. And so once evil is finally dealt with among the nations, the last section of the book describes how God's presence is going to one day return to his people and his temple to bring cosmic restoration. So Ezekiel first gets this long, elaborate vision of a new temple and a new city. He's given this heavenly tour guide who shows him around the new temple complex, and it's much larger and more majestic than even Solomon's temple. There's a new altar, new priests, a whole new system of worship. And then after this elaborate tour, God's glorious throne chariot that he saw back in his first vision comes back and it enters the new temple. Now the meaning of these temple visions has been the source of debate for a long, long time. So some Christian and Jewish readers believe that this vision will be fulfilled literally one day, and that these chapters offer the actual blueprints of the new temple that will be built when the Messiah returns and brings God's kingdom. But many other Jewish and Christian readers think that this vision, like all of Ezekiel's other visions, is full of symbols, and they depict the reality of God's presence returning to his people in the Messianic kingdom, but not necessarily in the form of an actual building. Whichever view you take, it's important that Ezekiel never calls the city Jerusalem, and chapters 47 and 48 show why. Ezekiel sees this tiny stream pouring out of the temple threshold and steps, and then it quickly becomes this raging river, and then it flows out of the temple and the city into the desert, into one of the most desolate places on planet Earth, the Dead Sea Valley. And then that river, it leaves behind it a trail of trees and life, and then the Dead Sea gets transformed into a living sea that's teeming with plants and animals. All of this imagery comes from the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And we see just how cosmic Ezekiel's vision really is. God's plan has always been to restore all humanity and all creation back to his life-giving presence. And so the book ends with the name of this garden city. The Lord is there. And so Ezekiel's visions come to a close, full of hope for a new future. New humans living in a new world that's animated by God's life-giving spirit. It's a world permeated with God's love and justice. And that's what the book of Ezekiel is all about. Alrighty. Questions? No. Closing prayer? Hey, what are you doing? No. Stop that. God didn't give you permission to do that. Sorry, technical difficulties. Please talk amongst yourselves. We'll be right back. Okay. So I think 
Last time we did leave off at like chapter 12 or something like that. Didn't get very far. Um, but the, as the video said, right there, um, from 12, you, you largely get into uh, judgment on Israel, right? Where does the judgment on Israel start? Or whom does the judgment on Israel start with in Israel? Doesn't start with the Assyrians? No, in Israel. Who does the judgment start with within Israel? Temple, temple leaders? Yeah. It starts with the bosses, right? It starts with the Pharisees and the priests, right? That's what, that's what uh, God instructs uh, Ezekiel to do. So start with my temple. Start with my sanctuary. Start with my priests, right? Um, and so, <clears throat> I don't know. We didn't get to 14 last time, or did we? Okay. So, just quickly... Um, 13, you have the false prophet <coughs> condemned, right? 13.3, uh, you see the Lord, thus says the Lord God, woe to the foolish prophets who call on their own spirit. They've seen nothing, right? They've seen false visions and lying divinations, right? The Lord says, I've not sent them, and they yet they expect him to fulfill every word. Do we have false prophets today? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just a few, right? Lord takes false prophecy very, very seriously. Uh, in verse in chapter fourteen is actually a very interesting uh, vision as well. So Ezekiel is looking at what's going on back in Israel. He's got this vision, right? He's kind of transporting back to the remnants of what's still happening in Jerusalem because remember they were exiled in waves. And in that he sees a vision of the temple, and in this temple. He sees that the, the workers of the temple, the priests, the Levites, they have taken idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. This is God talking. And in 14.4, uh, Therefore speak to them and say to them, says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes to with as he comes with the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged to me through their idols. I don't know if you remember last week in the video, they had pictures of massive idolatrous statues, like outside the temple, but actually on the temple grounds. Like that's how bad it got. Like the priests were worshiping idols, like right there uh, on the temple grounds. And so this is a vision that, Ezekiel has from the Lord, and the Lord tells him this, and he's like, guess what? I know what they're doing. And he asks him a question, and he says, if any of those idolatrous priests then come to me, wouldn't I just answer him according to the idols that are in his heart? <coughs> and so you picture that, and sometimes you picture it, we're going to God, and we're asking him to do something. Like, of course, the priest would probably be asking God to stop this um, exile to stop the Babylonians, to save our city, all of that. But they are literally going to God as with their arms full of their idols. And, and, and God says to Ezekiel, he says, I'm going to answer him as he comes with the multitude of idols. And so picture us even going to God and saying, you know, Lord, can you heal this person? Can you change this situation? Can you help me? Can you do whatever? And pretend that we are then entertaining the worship in our hearts of all these idols. And God's going to be like, yeah, I, I know all about that person that you want healed. 
I know all about that marriage that you want fixed. I know all about that situation that you, what, what are those? What are those in your hands right there? That, that's what I'm worried about. I can take care of all that other stuff in a flash. I want your heart. And right now your heart is full of idols. And it's just this, this picture of, of these men of Israel entertaining idols, but yet still calling on the name of the Lord to help them. And the Lord's going, I don't care about anything you're telling me right now. I care about what you're worshiping. I care about what's in your heart. It's just such a powerful picture of our heart allegiances and then going to God and God seeing the truth of our heart. And of course, in verse 6, the solution is repent and turn away from your idols and turn away from your faces and all of your abominations. And so some immediate application for us as we think about our prayer life, as we think about uh, the things that we hold as maybe idolatrous in our life, the things that hold too high of a position, like a God-like position in our own lives, and yet we're still asking God to do things. And he's going, I got it, Justin, I got it. I, I, I can do all that stuff you're asking me to do, but I'm interested in, your, in, your, in those idols. Let's get rid of those, and then let's work on, you know, so... Any thoughts on that? Just a powerful, powerful vision, a powerful situation that the Lord is calling us to. Well, that's how God wants us to prepare for worship, too. Sure. Uh, you, 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 you've um, talked about that in your sermon, you know, uh, try to put off, like my grandmother used to peel, peel the potatoes. Yeah. You know, Saturday night, I mean. Yeah. But, but yeah, uh, come quietly before God sit there and meditate, right? Yep. And uh, drain all that stuff, right? I mean, yep. get, yeah, it, it, our mind comes before him way too busy. Yeah. And you just have to flush that, right? Get yeah. Spiritual flush. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we can kind of get transactional with God sometimes, right? Like the genie in the lamp, like I need you to do these things for me. And God says clearly in Ezekiel 14, um, I, I want to lay hold of your heart. And want your heart. Hmm. And that's exactly when we come to worship. That's what we want to think about. How's my heart? Right? Uh, to that end, in Ezekiel 16, verse 30, just a powerful uh, comment from the Lord God. He says, how sick is your heart? Says, how sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all of these things. And that's what it is. Our hearts are sick with sin and idolatry. Hmm. You see him lamenting over his bride. We see a little bit of hope at the end of 16. Thus says the Lord God in verse 59, I will deal with you as I have done, who despise the oath and breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. In 62, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord. How many times have we heard that in Ezekiel already? Time and time and time again. So you will know that I am the Lord. They will know that I'm the Lord. We'll see it again when we look at the nations being judged. So they will know that I'm the Lord. Right? Again, when do we learn stuff? Usually when our face is in the dust. Right? Usually when we've been humbled. And then it's like, okay, I understand who's boss now. Sorry. Right? Then you will know that I am the Lord. But look at the faithfulness of God. It says, despite you've done all this, I'm still, yet I will remember my covenant. And better yet, I'm going to make you an eternal covenant someday. Dun, dun, dun. Um, 
which I'm going to skip a lot of the middle of this because this is all about um, God's wrath on the nations after he gets through with Israel's continuing rebellion, right? It's a lot of kind of the same thing. Um, in 20, he promises restoration again. Uh, 20, verse 33, As I live, declares the Lord, surely with a mighty hand and outstretched arm and with wrath poured out, I will be king over you. Right? I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you out of the countries where you are scattered, yet with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. What does that sound like? Where have we heard mighty hand and outstretched arm before? Oh, when he did the, the water. Yeah, exactly. When he did the water, the parting of the Red Sea. Yep. <laughs> Leading them out of slavery in Egypt, right? Um, no. Um, so yeah, so we see promises of restoration, but then right back to 21, it's kind of the pattern again. He's like, I've drawn my sword, you know? It is, it is ready to go. Here's my, my sword that I have for self-defense as well. Right? <laughs> and so he's like, it's out. Is that from John? No. No? <laughs> it's from someone else. It has not been sharpened on the side, but I'm pretty sure that could still do a lot of damage. This is what I do when I'm on the phone sometimes. <laughs> Practice my sword moves. But God says, no, it's, it's, out, of his she it's out of its sheath. It's out of its It is ready. It has. Uh, it's been pulled out. It is ready to go. I am ready. He's unleashing the Babylonian Empire. He's like, guess what? They want to run you over, and I'm going to let them. And that's your punishment. I'm glad to know when you're up here by yourself and no one else is in the building, you have some protection. I do. I, I always think about that. Like, what if like somebody was coming up here to do me harm, and I just show up at the top of the stairs with that thing? <laughs> They'd probably be like, mm, next church. <laughs> I'll go pick on the Methodists. <laughs> that dude's crazy. He's got a sword. <laughs> <laughs> 24 we see uh, the siege of Jerusalem do we know what's what what that that word means siege what's that to take hostage or just surround surround yeah more surround so right cities in that time had walls and Jerusalem had walls right and it was usually had a lot of gates that protected people coming in and out right and so if an enemy army came and laid siege to that, they would essentially surround the walls and they would cut it off from any food getting in, any maybe water getting in, supplies, all of that, and they would sit and they would wait. They'd wait until the people inside the city starved to death. And that would take a really, really long time. Right? But they don't care because they're ready. They, they're, they got all their camping supplies, you know. Uh, they're ready to go outside. They're feasting in the fields, just waiting for the people inside to slowly die. And, and we saw some of that in Jeremiah, right? Same thing, like, you know, they literally resulted to cannibalism to stay alive. And you think about the depths of what that must have looked like. It's just unbelievable. And eventually they would make, um, when they were weakened enough, they would make something called a siege ramp, which is tons of earth that they would move, and it looks like a big giant ramp, and they would make it uh, big enough to then finally just get their chariots and their men up over the wall, then they would go over the wall, and that, by that time, you know the idea is you're killing people that are half dead anyway, because they've been starving for so long. So that's the, the ugliness of the siege of Jerusalem. And it's completely right? opposite from Jericho, 
when Joshua was able yeah. to just circle. Yeah. Seven. Was that for a battle plan? Just, just. Well, the and then the walls came tumbling down. Yep. And here, obviously, God's not with them now. Yeah. Yeah. It was a brutal, brutal world at that point. And then to top it off, at the end of 24, Ezekiel's wife dies. And God gives him very, very crazy instructions. Um, he says, in, um, the word of the Lord comes to me, uh, 24, 15. Son of man, behold, I am about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep. You shall... Nor shall tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Only internal sighing. Uh, make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban. Put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips or eat bread of any man. So I spoke to the people in the morning. And at my evening, the wife died. And on the next morning, I did as I was commanded. It's like, wait, what? Hold on here. What are you? God says, guess what? Tomorrow morning, your wife's going to die. Don't mourn for her. Don't grieve for her. Just do your job. That's it. And Ezekiel does it. And it's like, okay. And on top of all that, I mean, we think like Ezekiel's like removed maybe from some of the suffering, but oh no, no, Ezekiel's in the midst of all this suffering, you know, in the midst of all of that. So personal tragedy as well as national tragedy we see in Ezekiel. And then we come upon a whole section of uh, prophecy against all of these nations that were then working against Israel. Right, prophecy against Ammon, Moab, Seir, Edom, Philistia, Tyre, all of that. All of the enemies of Israel. Again, God says that you're not going to get away with it. You are the enemies of my people, and you are going to be judged for that. So that's a pretty big section that we're going to fly over. Um, and if we end up in chapter 33... We see again a call for the watchmen, the shepherds, the priests of Israel to do their job. In chapter 33, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, If I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land, take a man from among them and take him as their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming, I don't want to act it out for you, but if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone hears the sound of the trumpet, does not take warning, the sword comes and takes him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. Verse 6, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, so that as people are not warned, the sword comes and takes any of them, that person is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at the watchman's hand. What is that whole little metaphor telling us? If the watchman sees the enemy approaching, blows the warning, and people ignore, ignore it, and they get killed, that's on them. You know, they blew the warning, right? They knew. They heard it. But if the watchman sees the enemy approaching doesn't. and just scrolls through his phone and doesn't sound the warning bell, right, and then people are killed, then who, who, whose guilt is that? It's the watchman. It's the watchman's guilt, right? What's, so what's he saying? You know, overlay that over Israel. What does that mean? What is he saying in that for Israel? Were the priests doing a good job of warning the people of what was coming? No. We saw way earlier, the priests were just saying, it's okay. Peace, peace, right? Where there is no peace. 
Elsewhere it said they healed the wound of the people lightly. Like they're saying, God's not really going to do that. You know, those crazy people like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're saying that the wrath of God is going to come. It's all fine. We're God's people. He's never going to let that happen to us. And it did. And so again, who is he going to hold responsible? The priest, the elders, the watchmen who didn't warn people. Very serious for uh, pastors and elders to think about this the same way as we preach and teach and warn people about false doctrine. What does it say about us as individuals in our relationships with others, other brothers and sisters in the body? Same thing. Okay, how so? We're, we're required to make sure that they and others understand. Yeah. That yeah. If God's, we, God's will, not ours. Yeah. So if, if we so, see our brother or sister heading towards sin, right? Galatians, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourselves, otherwise you too be tempted, right? If we know our brother is going into sin and we say nothing, what does that say about us? We're just going to let him keep going. No, it's equally at fault. Yeah. Warn him. Going to grab him. Be like, where are you going? Justin, you're getting off the path. It's dangerous over there. Come on back. Right? 33 ends, uh, well, in the middle of 33, Famous verse, 3311. This is God kind of pleading with them. And he says, you know, your sins, um, why, uh, verse 11, as I declare, the Lord says, right, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And you can hear him like begging, turn back. He says, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? There's like one like last kind of thing, like stop, just repent. I, I, this, is, this isn't bringing me pleasure to bring judgment upon you, but I have to do that. And he's begging them to repent through Jeremiah. So super, uh, you see the heart of the Lord in that, right? And begging them uh, to repent. And then at the end, uh, Jerusalem is struck down. 33, 21, the 12th year of our exile, the 10th month, on the 5th day of the month, a fugitive from Jerusalem came and said to me, the city has been struck down. So Jeremiah is already in Babylon, right? One of the first early waves. And he hears what happened in Jerusalem. So that's it. They came. The city's done. They finally got in. It's all over, right? So that's kind of where then the last part of Ezekiel uh, goes, right? And again, in 34, God goes after the shepherds. I felt bad for the shepherds. You did? I don't, I don't think he really meant the real shepherds. <laughs> <laughs> the actual sheep shepherds? Yeah, the actual sheep shepherds. I felt bad. <laughs> after I got, I, uh, he's talking about the priests again. Yep. Okay. Metaphorically, right? Pastor and yeah. shepherd are the same word. Yep. Um, <coughs> In verse 2, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not the shepherds feed the sheep? God's calling them out again and saying, Guys, all you've been worried about is your own hide and your own fear of selfishness while my people starved, literally starved to death, right? They were scattered because there was no shepherd, so he continues this kind of rant and responsibility for the shepherds. Look at verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, 
I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks for his flock when he's among his sheep that has been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. Jump down to 16. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. I will destroy and I will feed them in justice. A lot of I wills in those those verses there. So what's God doing here? What's he saying? You could say I will. It's okay. Right? You didn't. I was going to do it. Yeah. They didn't. Right? Shepherds failed. Guess what? I'm still not going to fail you. I'm coming after you myself. Right? God still defends his troops. Does this sound familiar? Verse 16, I will seek the lost. Anybody? <laughs> Echoing of anyone else in the Bible? In the New Testament? Right? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Right? Jesus is the shepherd. The sheep hear his voice and respond. Right? That's how this is all going to get fulfilled. Ultimately, through Christ, the great shepherd. Because, in verse 23, he comes right out and says that. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David will be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Psalm 23. What's that? Lord is my shepherd. Psalm. There you Psalm go. Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd. Yeah, yeah. Lord is my shepherd. Show that why. Yeah. So there's God coming out and kind of revealing his hand of his redemptive plan. He's like, I'm going to set up one shepherd, my servant David. Why is David important? Line of David. Yeah. The Messiah will come through the line of David. So, and he promised David that he will never lack a man to sit on his throne. He will always have, which is like, okay, so how? David was a shepherd. Yeah, David was a shepherd. Yeah, It's, it's thick in here. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. So David's coming after? This prophecy, this Ezekiel, or he, he already lived? Uh, he already lived. He already lived. Okay, yep. that's what I thought. It's like yep. very confusing. All right. Yep. But he promised David that he would never lack a man to sit on his throne. And you're like, well, how is that possible? He's just a human being. Right. And then you realize from the line of David. Right, so right, it's David's Christ heir, which is the prophecy Ezekiel's talking about. Not yep. David yep. Yep, exactly. And so, which of course points to Jesus, right? The Messiah that will come, right? That's how this is all going to be fulfilled. Um, if we jump over, I'll read John 10 for us, which is, I think, where Frank was just saying. John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf catches them and scatters them. Sounds a lot like the old priests, right? They're just like, here comes Babylon, see you later. And they leave the sheep, right? He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing <clears throat> for the sheep. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Right? So we see Jesus fulfilling this as the one who will come to be the one shepherd from the line of David. Right? Yeah, if the sheep come to the, their shepherd's voice, yeah. they will not come to another, they will not come to an imposter. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. They also, dogs don't come to you if, you, if they don't know your voice. <laughs> As I was chasing my neighbor's dog before church on Sunday morning, he looked at me and went, I don't know you. Mm. Just have plenty of treats in your pocket. 
Treat, treat. Cats so, could care less. They just, they just, they're just independent. They just go wherever the food is. Yeah, no. Cats. Yeah. Okay, so 35 and 36 are prophecies of two mountains. One is against Mount Seir, which is one of Israel's enemies, which is Edom. There's a long-seated history of hostility between Israel and Edom. And essentially why Edom is mentioned again in special reference here is because they love this. They love to see Israel get overrun by the Babylonians. They got their popcorn and they're just sitting and watching this whole thing happen. Right? And not only that, it says elsewhere, they were literally waiting for Israel to be driven out. And as soon as the people came teeming out of the city because Babylon was coming, guess what? They were right there to cut them down. So the Lord is now uh, having his judgment, or pronouncing, prophesying his judgment against Edom, right? The mountain, the second mountain in chapter 36 is the mountain of Israel, right? As for you, son of man, prophesy to the mountains of Israel and say to the mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord, right? He says, just because an enemy said of you, aha, right? And ancient heights have become our possession, right? That's Edom. They're like, finally, Israel's gone. Now's our chance to grab some of their land and kill some of their people. He says that's that's not going to happen. He says, prophesy to the mountains. Hear the word of the Lord. Um, where can I pick up a good part? Look at verse 6. Therefore, prophesy concerning the land of Israel. Say to the mountains, the ravines, the hills, and the valleys, thus said the Lord God, Behold, I've spoken in my jealous wrath, because you have suffered the reproach of the nations. Therefore says the Lord God, I swear that the nations that are all around you, they themselves suffer reproach. And he says, guess what? I know what's going on. And I will defend you. And I will judge them for their sin against you. So there's hope coming here. We see a little bit of hope um, in 36, 32, we see, a, or 22, sorry, 36, 22, we see a very, very famous prophecy of how, what that hope is going to look like. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, in verse 22 of Ezekiel 36, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of great name of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Jump down to 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean from all your uncleanness, cleanliness, cleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God, and I will deliver you all from your uncleanness. What a beautiful picture in the midst of all this. Yeah. The hope that God has, right? What is this a prophecy of? Besides Jesus, right? Look at verse 26. I will give you a new heart, and I will put what within you? Holy Spirit. Spirit. This is a prophecy of the Holy Spirit, not coming into existence for the first time, but a prophecy of the Holy Spirit coming in relation to what he's been talking about all along, the prince, the one who will come, the one shepherd, right? So when Jesus comes, he does the work, he leaves, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is the one that then resides within us. 
What else does the Holy Spirit do? We see it in this passage. What do we get when, we, when we're converted? Yeah, we get a, a new heart. Right? It's not just trying to be better. We become new people. So this is a prophecy of the gospel of what is going to happen when Jesus comes and does the work and gives us the Spirit. He says, I'm going to take your heart of stone out of you and I'm going to replace it with a new heart. And then he says, I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Has Israel proven that they can't walk in the statutes and the rules of God? Absolutely. They've fallen on their faces, right? And God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix that. I'm going to give you a new heart. Remember he said, how sick is your heart? <laughs> yeah. Now he's going to give you a new heart. And that new heart, with new heart, is going to come new desires, new appetites, new love for God, new desire to walk in his ways, new ability to walk in his ways, because we can't even obey God unless we have a new heart, unless we become born again. Otherwise, we're just trying to clean ourselves up, and that's not what the gospel is. The gospel's transformation. The gospel is old is dead, new has come. Walk in the newness of. So this is a fundamental theological passage that is a, is a gospel prophecy, but most of all, it's a prophecy of the Holy Spirit and the work that he will do. Any thoughts on that? Probably one of the most famous prophecies of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We were talking about Bible study this morning because we studied the conversion of Saul in Acts 9. Um, what are some marks of true conversion? Like when somebody really gets saved, what is what are some of the what are things we see? A contrite spirit. A contrite spirit, okay, towards their sin, mm -hmm. right? They know they've sinned. They know they need a savior. They feel bad about their sin. Yep, definitely. A big change in how they live. A big change in how they live. Right? Suddenly the things that they used to do, they don't do anymore. Right? They turn. And sometimes, depending on how far you walk down the path of sin, that could be a pretty dramatic change. And in the case of the Apostle Paul, he stopped murdering Christians. So that's good. <laughs> right? That, that's pretty big. Yeah. The desire Action. to learn. What's that? The desire to learn. Yeah. About who God is and Jesus. And yeah. How many people have a testimony of faith where it's just like, oh, I didn't read, I couldn't stand reading, and then I got saved and I read the Bible all the time. And it's like, what's that? That's the Holy Spirit inside you causing you to do that. Yeah, so contrition of sin, transformation, desire to learn. Anything else? Yeah, action and results. Yeah. Uh, got up and uh, all got up and yep. got right to business. Yep, Saul so got up and got right to, right to business, yeah. right? We actually see obedience. Like, we see fruit. We see you sanctification. We see you walking in those ways. All of that is only possible through the work of the Holy Spirit that he's talking about right here. So that's the marks of true conversion that we see. And so we still, when we talk about what does it really mean to be a Christian, we see some of these marks and we get it from the Word of God. Right? People walking in that, right? Um, how do we obey? I think we've hit it a couple times, but just to kind of put the exclamation point on the end of that sentence there. How do we even obey? Who's the one who empowers us to obey? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does, right? He says point blank, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Right? 
It is fruitless to try and walk out a new life if we don't have it. And we've got to remember that. And sometimes we just try, if you've ever had that as part of your testimony, maybe I'll just try to behave. Maybe we'll just try to not do stupid things. Then you end up falling on your face, right? Because you don't have a new heart. He's the one who empowers us to do that. But going back to the sheep, if we get off path and we get lost, yeah. he promises to go out and find us again. Yeah. Yeah, and hopefully he'll use the local church to do that too. Right. Yeah. There's also a very famous vision that he has in chapter 37, which I thought was very well done in the little movie that we watched. The Valley of Dry Bones. Yeah. So Ezekiel, Ezekiel looks out on just bones, right, in this vision. And in 37.3, God kind of messes with him a little bit and says, Son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel answers, uh, no. Like, you know the answer to that question. They're just a bunch of bones. And he says, prophesy over these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you. What? I know. No, it just, it's just, you're, it's you're still singing one. that song? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> behold, I will cause breath to enter yes. you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews, I guess muscles and things, upon you. And I will cause flesh to come into you and cover you with skin and put breath in you. And you shall live. And you shall know that I am the Lord. What do we see? What kind of things are, are resonating? What are, what are, let's, let's connect some dots here. Regeneration. Absolutely. Yeah. Regeneration. Big word. <laughs> Life. Big Bible word. Life from death. There's nothing going on. There's a pile of old, rotten bones. Now, to clarify, was this a vision, or this physically happened, and it's full of imagery? Probably a little from column A, a little from column B. <laughs> it is a vision. It is a vision. But I'm sure there's plenty of dead bodies all around. Right? I'm sure that's only heightening this. But primarily, it's a vision. Yeah. And so, yeah, we're talking about regeneration here. Who regenerates? God regenerates with his word. God regenerates with his word. He gets bonus points for throwing in the word. <laughs> yes, God's the one who saves. God's the one who breathes life into these dead bones. Where do we see God breathing life into things and them coming to life? Genesis. Genesis. Yeah. This is restoration. God literally breathed, ruach, the, breathed into the man his life from his nostrils. Right? So we see that. We see God creating new life. God creates our physical lives. God certainly creates our spiritual lives. And as Justin so wisely picked up, where does that life come from? Through the word of God. He says, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Word of life. The word of life. You guys okay? Sorry. I'm not, not part of that at all. She just threw us right over the bus. She's distancing herself, right? The word of the Lord, the Bible, God's word, actually creates life. And, and, and I could sit here for a very long time and tell you the people that have come to faith at Highlands Bible Church, not because I'm a good preacher, but because it's God's word, right? God's word creates new life. That's what it does. And, and we see that in this vision. His creation with purpose was life. Yeah. Not death. Absolutely. Yep. 
So again, after this wonderful vision, we see him in 24. What's that? Yeah, sin, death. Yeah. Sin is yeah, death, yeah. yeah. In verse 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. He's saying it again. And they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. Okay. Saying again, this is how this is going to happen. There's going to be one shepherd in that. And then we have the craziness of Gog from Magog in 38 to 39. Do not YouTube or Google Gog or Magog. You will go down a wormhole and maybe never come back. There are lots of people that want to say Gog is like Russia and Magog and China and it's happening now and oh, okay. to all that. I am I'm fully in the uh, it won't surprise you but I'm fully in that this is this is symbolic. There's so many things that have been symbolic symbolic up until this point. Um, I loved what the video said that this is this is the. Uh, kind of the amalgamation of all of the enemies of God, right? Um, this is it's not a real person, a real thing per se. It is a symbolic vision of all of the enemies of God as God, and that they will get what is coming to them. Um, and once again, he's going to judge them so that the people will know who is God. They will know who I am, right? God is going to defeat the enemies of Israel, and God is prophesying through Ezekiel again about the enemies of Israel and the enemies of God. And God will vindicate, this is a theme that we see time and time again in Ezekiel, God will vindicate his holy name. Right? How is his holy, why does his holy name need vindication in the first place? Yeah, that's a good question. Because the foreign nations are going to look at Israel and say, what God do you have that he just lets you die out? Absolutely. Several times in scripture, right, it'll say, like, uh, the nations will come and shake their heads and laugh and scoff at you, right? Oh, okay. it, it, it reflects, it's almost like God didn't protect his people. But au contraire, God was judging his people. But still, to the world, it looked like Yahweh failed. But it didn't, right? And so, yes, he has to vindicate the holiness of his name to the outside world. But, of course, he also has to vindicate his, the holiness of his name to Israel itself, who trounced his name did not carry his name completely. Classic study of violating the third commandment. Did not carry the name of the Lord well. right? And so God is going to get glory in judgment, which for us is like, huh? God's going to get glory by judging Israel and also by judging his enemies. And again, then they will know that I am the Lord. Um. In 40 through 48, the last eight chapters or so, we see uh, six chapters worth of very detailed visions of the new temple, which again, if you are to YouTube, you would find out that there's, Bridget's already smirking, that there's lots of people that believe that this is actually a physical temple that will be rebuilt and will descend from the earth or whatever is going to happen in Revelation and this will actually be a physical temple that will be rebuilt. Um, I'm not mad at you if you believe that. I, I fall again on the symbolic side of things. Um, and there's a couple reasons for that because again, first and foremost, the whole book really is contextually symbolic. And second of all, there's a little matter of when Ezra and Nehemiah come back to rebuild the temple. They don't go here. They don't look at, oh, I remember God, he gave Ezekiel that vision. We better follow those plans. 
No, they don't follow these plans at all. There's nothing. They're rebuilding a temple and they're not following it at all. So I do say that this is a symbolic uh, temple, um, but there are people that believe that it's an actual literal temple. These are more visions, right? We see more language again of like the appearance of, the likeness of, things like that. In verse, uh, chapter 43, we see something massive happening. What did he call it? His chariot wagon? His, His chariot. Flying chariot. Chariot. Wagon. Oh, his throne? His throne chariot. wagon? Throne. His <laughs> throne chariot. Throne chariot. In the video, he called it his throne chariot. All right? And we see that it left, right? It left shortly before Babylon came. And what do we see in chapter 43? Led me to the gate, the gate facing east, and behold, the glory of the Lord, the God of Israel, was coming back from the east in his little throne chariot. The sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. So after God has victory over his enemies, after he's judged Israel, there's this vision, right? Complete. You've got to tie in the Messiah to this, right? There's the vision of God's glory will return, and it will return, really, in the new heavens and the new earth. And his glory will, will be with us once again, right? So we see the return of God's glory. And we see that God will not abandon us. He's not going to abandon his people. He does come back. He does redeem. He does everything he said he was going to do. Side note, in uh, 43, we see the gate for the prince. And I'll show you a couple quick photos. And I turned off my TV. When we were in Israel, this is the, they call the Golden Gate or the East Gate. Mike's TV. Da -da -da. Mirroring happening. So, wow, I can use my laser pointer because it's right here in my drawer. So awesome. I don't know if you can see it on the screen. Oh, dang it. <laughs> I saw it on the door. Use the sword. Use the sword. <laughs> That's a great idea. <laughs> so, take a picture of this. If I break this TV, you all have to covenant together. You will not tell Ray Westby what happened. <laughs> so this is. Overlooking, this is the, the <laughs> this is the old wall of Jerusalem, right? We're looking down the Mount of Olives at this, and I've zoomed in on this. This is the East Gate, the Golden Gate, and it is sealed shut, as you can see. Sealed shut. And it's sealed shut for a reason. It's a good thing that's not sharpened. It's sealed shut for a reason because we see in Ezekiel 44 that this is the gate for the prince. 44.1. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter it, for the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered it. So this is when the, the, the uh, throne chariot goes through. He's coming through the east gate, and they said, That's it. It is too holy. God went through here. We've got to close this thing up. Therefore it shall remain shut, and only the prince may sit to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. So, wow, another fire. Um, it's sealed shut. There's various reasons of why it's sealed shut, but it, 
the Jewish people there, most of them would say it's sealed shut because the Messiah is the only one that's going to be able to open it when he comes. But was there was there a, a command from God or something in Scripture that led them to do that, or did they just decide to do that themselves? Like, oh, that's too holy. It intersects with actual history because Jerusalem has been run over several times right. since then, and the latest that messed with that gate was the Ottoman Empire in the 1500s. And they heard about this Messiah that was going to come through the gate. And so they're actually the ones that sealed it up. And it was kind of funny to think about because it's like, well, we don't want that happening, so we'll just put concrete over so the Messiah doesn't come through. It's like, I really don't understand if they thought a gate was The Messiah comes... Get in. My redemptive plan is foiled. <laughs> right. But it's kind of more folklore at this point, you know. But our 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 Jewish tour guide was like, no, that's closed because only the Messiah is going to come in through that. But there is history that kind of is funny the way that they thought the Messiah would actually be stopped if they actually boarded that up, right? But it is in the same way where um, where the Messiah will return, and if we look at um, this is the Mount of Olives overlooking. And so it will be, be that way. Yeah, they're more that way. Um, these are graves, and there's thousands and thousands of graves. This is the holiest burial site in all of Judaism. Yeah. And they're all pointed the same way. Wow. They're all pointed east. They're all pointed east because that's where the Messiah is going to come. When the Messiah comes, they need to be ready to roll. So they're all pointed east. And they're all waiting for the Messiah to come. There's like 70,000 graves or something it's like that. Really it's insane. Because God can make them up, but he can't turn them around. Yep. <laughs> 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 God, I'm the right way. <laughs> okay, everybody, look at me. Turn around. <laughs> the levels, when you like get into some of this in Israel, the levels of like why they do the things they do is like, really? And that's what, it's just like they all point the same way. It's also a bummer because you can't ever be buried here uh, anymore because it's full and you have to be super duper rich in order to be buried there. And so wow. if you're a, a common Jewish person, you're just out of luck, I guess. You can't, you're going to have to wait for the second phase of the Messiah returning or something. But this is all real stuff, man. Wow. Bonus question. You see the rocks on the graves? We come to visit. Oh, man. <laughs> you're right. Somebody left one at Ed's. It's happening. They did? Yeah. Anybody know what they're called? Stones. <laughs> Ebenezer stones. Ebenezer? They're called Ebenezer stones. So when you come, you, you put a stone down in your loved one's grave, and it signifies that you were there in remembrance of them. So if you do go by a Jewish cemetery, you see that. Even today, you'll see that. Are those graves like on top of the ground? I mean, are, yeah. There's I, well, do you remember what she said? I think I think they're actually buried. They're dead. I think they're buried, but I think those are the tops of them. Or are they the ossuaries, the yeah. boxes with just the bones in it? Those that I'm not sure of. Yeah. Yeah. What's going to happen? I mean, that Ezekiel 37 is going to happen in real life. But you see, they kind of miss the whole. Stopped. They miss the whole deal here, right? Of, of the Messiah has already come, That's the same right? Okay. But he's coming again. 
at the end, that's when all this will, will take place, right? There will be a resurrection, right? But it doesn't have anything to do with where you're buried and what, direct, what direction you're pointed in, right? It has to do with the fulfillment of what Ezekiel has been telling us all along, of the one shepherd that will come, of the Holy Spirit that will be put into our hearts, right? Of the new life that we will give, of the restoration of God's creation in, in, in Eden, and, and so that has to that. be the top of these. They have to be underneath. Yeah, they are. I'm pretty sure they are. I, I think it's coming back to me now. But yeah, because yeah. they're, they're it's amazing. So They're so amazing. Yeah, it's Look at the last verse of forty-eight. There's the circumference of the city shall be eighteen thousand cubits. The name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. Right. It, it ends on this note that the Lord has returned, his glory has returned, God's presence is with his people again, and that's going to be us. We will be with the Lord for eternity. God will be with us, we will be with him in perfection, in this city, beautiful, perfect city, and all of his creation. So, questions, thoughts, encouraging remarks? Stupid pickle. <laughs> no, good. You good? <laughs> Are we more encouraged than last week? Okay. <laughs> last, week was tough. last week was rough, man. <laughs> this week we see the end of the story, so. Lots of encouragement. And it turns out, once again, all of the Bible tells the same story. It is. It points to. Jesus, what's the hero of the Bible and the gospel? Okay, well, let me pray for you all. I'm going to turn you back to your Wednesday evenings already in progress. Father, thank you uh, for your word, Lord. There are many things in Ezekiel that are difficult to understand, uh, even some of these things that we we think with the, the vision of the temple and the exact details of the city of Jerusalem. And Lord, we, we do our best to get our arms around that. And Lord, may we not even be distracted so much by these details, Lord. I, I, uh, it, the, the main emphasis is who you are and your glory. Lord, that your holiness is actually redeemed through judgment, that you have to punish sin the way that sin deserves. You you can't just let sin slide. And we think about that in our own lives, that you didn't just give us a pass, uh, that the sins that we did in rebellion against you, you redeemed the holiness of your name as image bearers of you, as creatures of you, that we failed you, just like Israel did, and that you put all of that sin on the head of the prince of Jesus the Messiah when he came. And Lord, you punished him in our place and redeemed your holy name and then gave us righteousness that we have through faith. And so help us, Lord, to walk in that. We are so thankful for Jesus and the work of the Holy Spirit that we are able to have a new heart and we are able to have new life literally breathed into us by you, that our, our old, dead, sinful bones come to life and they come to life with a new heart that is ready to obey your rules and walk in your ways and give us new life and a life that Jesus says is abundant. And so we're thankful for that. Help us to walk in that. Help us to put these pieces together to glorify you. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.